Today's conversation is about the first European company to reach a 500 billion euro valuation. They're the only European company in the global top 10 behind the likes of Apple and Tesla. Yes, we are talking about the iconic global fashion group LVMH, which stands for Moet Hennessy Louis Vuitton. LVMH is run by the richest man in the world, Bernard Arnault, who at the time of this recording is currently worth $236 billion. Today, we're going to discuss the key drivers for their success, how they've been able to manage risk over the years, and interestingly, how Bernard has actually organized his family for long-term generational wealth and future success. Before we kick off, let's find out everyone has enjoyed their bank holiday weekend. Shuo, how have you been over the last couple of days? How have you spent the time? Yeah, all good. Good to see see you guys. Um, it's been a couple of weeks since our last uh, group episode. From my end, bank holiday weekend was really good. Um, I think over the two, three days, I was on the road about 11 hours. Uh, one of the days we spent with my wife's family. We had like a family event of 20 people. Um, went to the Cotswolds for a day, done a family picnic and all that, all that fun stuff. Uh, and then another day went to uh, Birmingham for a another family event, a birthday on my side of the family. This was a one-year-old birthday party and there were almost 150 people there so it was a, a family filled weekend but it was really nice to to see everyone especially after the month of uh, month of ramadan uh, and now obviously a couple of weeks post ramadan it's nice to get back into a normal routine early starts early morning gym workouts hopefully ollie you're not getting any late night notifications from me anymore it's back to the the morning morning flow but otherwise yeah good good to good to be back in the swing of things Olu, how are you actually with that? Olu, how how was your how was your break? Because you've been obviously traveling again on that on that CFO bag. So tell us about your latest trip. Far from, far from. Um, yeah, no, I decided to go to <laughs> Israel. So I think it was a Friday night. Um, I realized I didn't have any plans for the bank holiday weekend. Started looking online, looking at cheap flights, offers, deals, and I saw um, a flight to Tel Aviv. Um, and I said, oh, why not? Did some research first um, just to see how safe it was. Because, you know, I remember watching this video on um, Instagram where the guy was like, oh, he's travel hackers. He travels to places where there's been some sort of um, war or something going on there. Why they discount the like the price. So I was like, let me just make sure it's completely safe for me to travel um, and not just go based on the price. Uh, but Tel Aviv was amazing, um, really safe, um, friendly people, um, did a day tour of Jerusalem, which was amazing as well. So it was a great bank holiday weekend. Um, highly recommend it. Um, yeah, had a lot of fun. So wait, I, I didn't know it was two things. One, I um, respect you on the fact that it was kind of a spontaneous trip because I know you mentioned this at the back end of last year. You wanted mm -hmm. to do this more, right? Um, yeah. Enjoy your let's say, your hard-earned um, money. But um, at the same time, I am surprised at the fact that you just literally went ahead. So you literally, you flew out Saturday. You, you saw it on Friday and flew out Saturday. So I saw, I, I basically booked it 10 hours before my flight. So Sheesh. packed my bags and was like, hand luggage. I'm only there for three nights. Um, yeah, and I went. Cool. Do you, do you see yourself doing that again? Yeah, for sure, for sure. No, uh, I think the I need to better plan. Um, okay. I, I don't. There's no need for me to do it ten hours before, right? <laughs> yeah. um, but I think I need to better look forward and say, okay, when do I appear as that I'm free? 
um, it'll probably be cheaper. Um, I can also su suggest it to friends as well um, to see if they want to go as well. So, yeah. Hopefully that inspires a couple of our listeners. Be more spontaneous. Um, someone else was traveling, but they had a different experience when it came to um, coming <laughs> back or returning. Daniel, how are you? Yeah, I'm all good. I'm, I'm still recovering from uh, a very hectic weekend that I'm still trying to calculate and remember which day of the week it is. But I thought today was Wednesday a few months ago, but it's, 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 a, it's a Tuesday. But yeah, I was away for work in Austin, Texas. Um, very nice city, quite quiet, very hot. Um, some tornado alerts as well at the same time. Some delicious barbecued meat. Um, and I think the highlight was probably the return for not very pleasant reasons. It was a, an adventure that I didn't plan of being um, TLDR, short, long story short. Um... <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> hey, Nanny, cut, cut this out, man. Hold it down, hold it down, hold it down. Come on, man. Come on, professional. Hold it down. Come on. That's that's what it, well. It's a plane in my head. I was trying to hold it down, but no, nah, nah, I, I fumbled because I'm start smiling. And I would, Listen, yeah. we're gonna be we're um, gonna be yeah. doing live shows soon. You gotta hold it down. <laughs> come on, come on, go, yeah, go, so, go. yeah, so um my flight to so I was going back to London via JFK. My flight was 12.55. I got there in good time by about 10 a.m. Just thought I wasn't sure what um, customs was going to look like. And I got there notified that my flight was delayed from 12.55 to 2.30, then 2.30 to 3.25, 3.25 to 5, then 5 to 7, 7 to 8, 19, 8.19 to 8.45, 8.45 to 9.05. Um, so in between that, after about 5 o'clock, cool, I had to keep changing my connecting flight at JFK to later because it was clear that I was going to miss it. Then the reality of me having to sleep at JFK became a reality. So I tried to jump on the direct flight from Austin to London because at the time of me booking, it was a full flight because of everyone that was in town for the conference. I got to the gate and tried to say, can I buy a ticket? They said, no, they don't issue tickets. I looked online. There was one business class ticket left for about, you know, £9,000. I was like, I ain't getting back. So I tried to go through the travel agent to cancel my current flight to get a direct flight. But by the time they picked up, the, the seat had gone and the flight was soon leaving. So I wasn't going to make it. And so I then went to the desk to see what alternative routes were. The one that I, I, I decided to take was to fly to Los Angeles for three and a half hours, then fly back on myself to London, which was a 11 hour flight. And the reason I decided for that was one, because it was a longer flight for me to actually try and get some sleep on the flight. And that was the real reason. And I had a 54 minute layover time. So I thought it leaves me in good time. The flight got there in good time and then Time started, well, time quickly uh, eroded. I had 26 minutes to get to my connecting flight whilst being on my flight. I then kind of just was asking everyone to move out the way to get off the flight. I ran from Terminal 5 to Terminal 4. At the same time, I'm bursting for the toilet. I'm on the, the airline calls me to ask where I am to see if I can make it. And like, yeah, I'm trying yeah, to, I said, I'm, I, said, I'm, I said, I'm running. I said, yeah, I said, I'm running. I said, I'm running. I'm trying to, I'm trying to, I'm, I'm running as fast as I can. I said, but I'm bursting for the toilet. Can I use it? He goes, no, we just need you on the flight. You'll do all of that when you get on. I'm running towards the gate and I see one man running towards me. He's like, are you Mr. Johnson? I said, yeah. He said, come, come. Just pass my passport. He said, just come through. I'm like, I started to sweat. Everyone else is there sitting down, drinking their drinks and not knowing the flight is there, still on the tarmac because of me. Um, so yeah, I, I unloaded and finally I was, I was grateful to be on the flight because it was a, it would have been a 15 hour wait in, in LAX. But if that was going to happen, 
you know it's going to hit up at AJ anyway. So um, that's that, what that I was thinking. The, that's the, what the I was thinking. <laughs> little sweet, little sweet chick. Uh, trust me. Yeah. Then I, then I got back to London. Uh, got to the baggage hall. My bag was not there. So my bag came this afternoon, two days later. But all in all, good trip. Grateful that I got back safely in the bag. I wasn't really in need of anything urgently. So yeah. But yeah, good week. Eventful weekend. Trying to battle um, traveling across different time zones. And yeah, I'll be back off again in a couple of weeks. So that's how I'm doing. Boy, me? Then, I was at boy, home with boy, my family boy, and my wait, kids. Wait, 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 wait. I didn't wait, drive wait, anywhere. Wait. I didn't fly anywhere. I just chilled. I just... I was going to say, Olu says, I'm a man of few words. Olu, does that pass your 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 credit, your check? few words? You usually say when you ask, how am I? You say, I'm a man of few words. I've read it. So does that pass? Does my response... Does my response Oh, okay. Yes. No, yes. Is yes. It's much better than last week. I think last time we did an episode, you were just like, "Fine," and I'm like, "Okay, cool." <laughs> <laughs> That's it. <laughs> but that was much better, at least. But I'm happy Thank that you, you got home. Be, be, yeah. Be all, yeah. Great. Great. I feel great. Um, echo to echo Shaw's point. Um, it's now the second week from Ramadan, so it's 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 great to have experienced the month, but also be in a position where you can reflect and build on from the month and get back into um, a strong routine. And effectively, you know, have food and drink um, to fuel you. So um, from that standpoint, really good. And then, yeah, bank holiday weekend, just a lot of family time. You, you know, that's sort of what I try to prioritise. Um, um, kids are great. Lauren's great. So, um, yeah, well, good. Like I said, I didn't, I didn't fly anywhere. I didn't, we didn't drive anywhere. We just, we just stayed at home. So you guys might want to try that. It's, it's too you, much you going on. You, on, you, on didn't buy, you didn't buy a property over the bank holiday. I know that's no, your I didn't. sort of level. <laughs> I don't, we're here going traveling, you know. Next one on the next holiday. On the next holiday. Cool. Now with that, um, LVMH, let's let's jump into it. And I think I think it'll be quite important to provide some background on the man behind LVMH, Bernard Ono, and his early years, because I think it will really help the listeners to better understand his business philosophy, the vision, and the level of success in which he's actually achieved to date. So um, some basic background. So Bernard is 74 years of age. He was born and raised in France and he studied engineering at one of the most prestigious schools. After graduating, he worked for his father's civil engineering business and shortly after joining, convinced his father to sell the construction arm and focus on real estate. He later became the CEO and then worked in that leadership role for around 10 years. His interest for luxury brands was actually inspired by his mother and his first real deal that really got him started was Dior. Dior at the time was owned by a textile company, and in 1984, the parent company had filed for bankruptcy. So Bernard, with his experience and aspirations of wanting to own a historical set of brands, saw the opportunity and was able to actually raise 50 million from the business, 45 million then from the investment bank, Lazard, to actually close the deal. He then sold off some of the textile assets, only to keep Dior and Le Bon Marche department store, profiting 500 million euros in the process, and this was all achieved by the age of 35. So with that, you really start to get a sense of the level of success that he tasted at such an early age. And maybe it's no surprise that we see the level of success that where LVMH um, has reached um, now. So after that, LVMH was next. Um, the company itself was actually founded in 1987 through a merger between Louis Vuitton and Moet Hennessy. Strategically, the merger was actually intended to provide diversification for Louis Vuitton and protection from a hostile takeover bid for Moet um, Hennessy. Bernard became involved with, with LVMH sort of a year later, 
as the founders were actually looking for investment. And with his aspiration, as I mentioned, to sort of create that brand of luxury goods, of course, he was very excited by the opportunity. So once he secured his stake, he then, safe to say, worked very aggressively to increase his ownership stake, um, where he could actually have majority control, later becoming chairman, and then literally, ultimately, the last one standing to actually run the business. Today, LVMH is a global luxury conglomerate which sells over 75 brands across 5,600 stores, right from to perfumes, wines, leather goods, and watches. Just to name a few brands, we're talking about Louis Vuitton, Christian Dior, Givenchy, Fendi, Hublot, Tag, Tiffany & Co. recently, Dom Perignon, and the list goes on. Like In 2000... Sorry? I thought you were listing your wardrobe. Uh, no, 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 no. Not yet. Not yet. Okay, in, cool, in, cool. In, 2000, in 2022, they generated just over 79 billion euros. And that revenue is up from 23% versus last year with profits of around 21 billion, providing them with a very healthy margin of 26%. The majority of their revenue is driven by their fashion and leather goods with their highest share of sales coming from the Asian market. Financially, they're in a very, very strong position as a company with strong cash flows and very little debt relative to the actual size. So the question after all that is how? How have they been able to grow, right, from 1988, um, where Louis Vuitton was doing about a billion in sales, to where they are now, to around 80 billion, um, billion in sales, and the owner, you know, sees there a lot more growth moving forward. So thoughts, thoughts on what have been some of their key drivers that you guys have identified when just sort of looking at this story? Sure, I don't know if you I want to kick for off. Me, oh, Daniel, please. Uh, no, I was, I was going to say, I think for me, when you look at Louis Vuitton, Moe, Hennessy, um, and the and the and the brands that are under the umbrella like Bulgari, Dior, Givenchy, um, Veuve, Clicquot. Um, oh, yeah, I hope my French is uh, passing your French check from the uh, four months he studied. Oh, oh yeah, sorry, yeah, we... four months he lived. <laughs> but... Well, I had, I had uh, um, my my understanding is out of all of us, Olu is the most fluent. Then is Daniel. Then is Pete. Well, we can we no, can so find that's... out. No, 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 no. Because Olu, no, no. Well, Olu said that he would do the last part, you know, in French. So we can get to that part. Daniel, continue. Actually, I, I, I remember that. Sorry, yeah. Vraiment? Olu, vraiment? La distance, s'il vous plaît. La distance, s'il vous plaît. That's his only last number one line. La distance, s'il vous plaît. La distance, s'il vous plaît. And directions. No, but uh, jokes aside, no jokes aside, but when you look at like um, Moet and Chandon, um, these are all different, I would say, diversified um, group um, products that they have and as P you mentioned from leather goods to cosmetics to perfumes to couture to spirits to retail to luxury hotels and media it's a very diverse conglomerate of a group and it's kind of a, a behemoth of a, of a group and I think one of the strategies as you mentioned that Bernard Arnaud took on was the merger of uh, Louis Vuitton NEC and I believe in 1987 and rapidly over time that's grown I, i'm going to bring kind of music into this in a moment as well because i just think it's a, a good touch point um but one thing one strategy that they really did was rather start than starting from scratch the group has followed a very simple strategy of acquiring prestigious band, brands from the very beginning that's a key thing they're not trying to reinvent the world they're taking brands that are established well known and just putting that within their group for example many of the groups that are under the the, the, the company Many people don't even know it's part of LVMH. For example, Sephora, the, the cosmetic company. Many people don't know it's part of LVMH. And their traditional know-how of creativity and a sense of innovation has enabled them to showcase French excellence to the world. 
and they've also become very, very good and done craftsmanship very well. And it's part of that symbol of French luxury. And as you, to, just to give you, uh, I think P, you mentioned it, to give an enormity of how many products or brands are under that their umbrella, it's 60 prestigious brands, not just 60 brands, 60 prestigious brands with more than 3,000 stores and 160,000 employees, which now are considered the leader in the luxury goods market. And but you're asking, how have they come to this? Um, the, the, the secrets, I think, to the success is that they've been able to allow each brand to develop independently. They've given them full autonomy, but at the same time, brands develop smart synergies with each other to avoid a head-on competition, um, for example, in research products. I think that's a key thing because research can be a key revenue uh a key revenue drainer or key cost drainer when looking at launching products and go-to-market strategies. Um, the group has also relied on a wide range of investors from Christian Dior, which the Arnold family own, 97%, basically the whole, the whole group. Uh, um, and they're the majority shareholder of 46, of, sorry, they're the majority shareholder of LVMH of 46%. They also have 40% from foreign institutional investors 9% French invest investors and 4% of in individuals. And then when you look at how diversified their brands are and the revenues that they generate is fashion and leather goods are 37% of their revenues. Selective retailing is 28% of their revenues. Wine and spirits, 16%. And I probably pay a part into that, but probably not a big, big, big number. Uh, perfumes and cosmetics, 14%. Yeah, probably me again. Watches and jewelry, 5%. That's P and um, Shuel. So when you look at that, I think it's really clear that they've a diverse stream of incomes, um, diff different revenue streams um, to, to the company. And even the part that I'd say in this day and age, influencers play indirectly. They're not being paid. But when you look at, say, Instagram and people influencing on Instagram or flexing, when have you not seen someone wear Louis Vuitton? When have you not someone see Givenchy or something expensive or in the in the club popping bottles of Mouet and Chandon? Um, so... I think it's clear that this also influences our, our uh, you know, consumer spending by looking at habits, looking at trends or what's going on in the influencer lifestyle on Instagram, what's happening in clubs or the people in high life, and therefore also driving you know, our, our spending habits. I'll pause there. Time out. Yeah, no, fantastic. Uh, thank you, Daniel. Uh, Shuo, your, your, your thoughts on some of their key drivers? Yeah, amazing. I think, first of all, actually, uh, I would say, Pete, solid solid introduction i think the the history that you gave the background and the key financials i think really set the scene and then i think daniel the way that you've talked about the the business model and the success factors have been have been great as well i think the only thing that i would probably add from my end is maybe for the listeners some frameworks that we can apply on both what pabilo and daniel have said so you can think about it from your own business perspective i think the first piece is that if you think about the top of the funnel the macro picture how Daniel has really laid out from the foundation, their business model is really entrepreneurship through acquisition. So you won't be hearing any startup brands being created within LVMH. They're really trying to go for these legacy brands that have been around for tens of years, hundreds of years, ideally, that really have stuck around. And these are brand names that resonate around the world. So they are really focused on this entrepreneurship through acquisition. I think the next framework that I was looking at that 
they based on their business is if you think about okay from a company perspective it's really got a, a full vertical integration so as daniel mentioned with sephora for example that's a department store that sells makeup within the lvmh group they've got their own makeup brands and within those brands they also own the factories that create the the makeup now they are applying this to the different categories that daniel has said so the spirits the the leather goods all these fashion houses have been vertically integrated and once you own that full supply chain then you've got a strong purchasing power you can really manage costs mm. as well and you can ultimately charge higher prices as well especially if you own the store at the end like lvmh and you get that interaction with the customer at the end of the the funnel so i think that vertical integration from a business is, is something that we can definitely admire i think the last thing is just on the the actual product itself so using a frame that we've discussed in previous episodes around people products process so process, once you've got, as Daniel said, 60 brands, then the process of manufacturing a brand can easily be scaled. The distribution of distributing these goods around the globe can also be scaled. So that's an element on the process where if you start to get that economies of scale at an 80 billion revenue level, you really start to see the results. From a people perspective, I think what they've also been able to do amazingly well is attract great talent to their brands. People like Virgil Abloh, Kanye West has been linked to it before with partnerships and now they've been able to attract Pharrell people like Jay-Z Beyonce now they want to work for them because it's not just LVMH it's really a, a, a roster of brands that you can be involved with and Bernard is someone that clearly is has done extremely well so from a business perspective to be seen as a partner to him is something that can really be attractive for people wanting to build a career or, or partnership I think the last thing is around the products so their products speak for themselves they won't be able to charge and get 20 30 percent margin if it wasn't a high quality product and again once you've got a roster of these brands then it just amplifies it even even more so some great frameworks i think for us to to learn learn from and many many success factors so that's why i'm i'm curious to to understand from a from a generational wealth perspective what what we could also learn together yeah no thank you sure i'll just add a bit of color to one of the points that um daniel mentioned and and, and collect some thoughts also from olu on on what's making them successful. You spoke earlier about one of one of their key drivers has been this sort of um, acquisition, right? Um, and if you look at their timeline, they've, they literally have gone on this acquisition spree of every year or two years, they're actually acquiring another asset, if you want to call it that. And there was an interesting story that I came across where Bernard at the time, before he acquired, um, before he got involved with LVMH, was, uh, took a trip to the US. And he was traveling and, in, and he had a conversation with the taxi um, driver and he said to him, do you know um, about our French president? And the, the driver responded by saying, I don't know about your French president, but I know about Dior. Dior. And, what, and what he learned from that was in, in his world, value is equal to history. So the longer, the longer standing history brand there is, the more value it has. And it's almost like, and, and I think that's, one of the philosophies they've taken in let's acquire the brands that have had the longest standard history. So I think, I think that's a um, tapping into philosophy and how that's kind of played through over the last sort of couple of years, but definitely that the, maybe they've been, you know, one of the best, right. In, in taking those global leadership positions with these brands and, and acquiring over the years. Uh, Olu, just to get also your thoughts on, or maybe some of the things that you noticed when talking about um, the success of LVMH. Uh, so, um, <laughs> <laughs> let me do my French. Wait, 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 wait. 
You sound like, yeah, uh, you, yeah, know, yeah. you know you know, Joey Barton oh, when he done the interview. Uh, Binad. Marseille, Marseille, Marseille. So, Binad écrit uh, Empire, Excel, Le Mekwe. Um, so, for the non-French speakers, what I basically said was, Bernard created his empire really focusing on brands. And I think the story that... <laughs> what did uh, you say? Wait, no, like that, leave, leave, leave. Let me finish it. I was actually going to ask Olu to close his eyes and say that again. Because I'm reading it from my screen. I had Google Translate on. But no, I really love that story that you mentioned, P. Because it's funny how important brand is to people like you might not know the president but there's certain staple names and um a lot of times in business what they class it as is goodwill right it's not it's intangible value right is you can't basically put a value a dollar amount of it it's not like a factory or manufacturing or whatever it's just the namesake and the brand and in so many cases People don't realize by creating something or acquiring a massive brand, automatically the way people think about it, and especially in the fashion industry and beauty industry, there's certain names that are household names, right? That people connect with prestige. People connect with um, the flashy lifestyle. I think Daniel's mentioned it in music, et cetera, et cetera, right? That um, aspirational, oh, this item means status means wealth right and he understood that from an early age to say look and in most of these cases i'm sure he even overpaid for some of these names and certain brands at the time right but he understood the importance of if i can do get these brands put them into our ecosystem and she was talked about putting them in their process i'm sure they've had innovations based on all the different acquisitions they've done i can generate a massive value in the future I, i'll say that that's a big thing that i've sort of taken away from this topic and just looking into how he moved um there was also some dark um it's not all pretty right especially when you're doing company takeovers right um if you've watched a show called succession um uh, you'll know that some of these takeovers can be ruthless so for the amount of wealth he's generated at such a young age and all these companies as he's quiet i know it must have been the, some the, tense the, moments. Yeah. The operative yeah. word that I used in my introduction was that he aggressively increased his ownership yes. stake. Um, yeah. But yeah, definitely people should should read on further to understand exactly um, what that um, means. Sort of how he's dedicated and how he's committed himself to, to being in the position that he is. Um, but I wanted to ask you guys about the user experience because I'm sure, I think everybody in here has purchased some, some product from Louis Vuitton at some point. Daniel's shaking his head. I know he has. Um, but maybe you can talk a little bit about the the user experience, how you felt when you went into the store, because I guess that also plays a big role. A lot of the times I think people want, people are attracted to these brands because of that user experience. They get treated differently than if they went to a mid-market player like Ralph Lauren, for example. So it starts from the moment you walk in. So maybe, maybe I don't know, Daniel Shaw, you can talk a little bit about how that also has played a role um, in, in, in separating what it feels like to, to buy from others. Yeah, sure. So when I went to AliExpress.com, um, oh, I went God. to search for... <laughs> <laughs> go ahead, go ahead. <laughs> um, yeah, so when I went into... The, I remember vividly, I think it was the first time I purchased something was maybe 2014, 
from Louis Vuitton. Um, I went to Louis Vuitton store in the village in Westfield and I went to get myself a wallet. Um, I went to purchase a wallet rather. And I went to get um, it, what's the word? Uh, is it monogram? Mono, mono, it's not monogram. What's the word? Yeah, I went to get it. 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 I think my first user experience was probably on the online store, which is very clean, very easy to use, easy to navigate. So I'll probably focus more on the website, um, the user experience from a online perspective, commerce perspective. And, you know, when you look onto the Louis Vuitton store on the website, very easy to use. It's got like small leather goods, large leather goods. Some of them are in multiple um, sections, but very easy to navigate. And then I, I opted for the personalization, which is put my, to inscribe my initials and put DJ with it in for me. It will take a, a few weeks or so and it will inform me when it's ready for collection. Um, I then went to the to the store in Westwood to, to pick up the item. Um, and I think from whether you're buying something or just your general customer experience and the service you receive when you go into the store, they're very restrictive of how many people are in the store at a particular period of time. The reason being is not that it's usually um, from a point of, it could be point of theft and safety, but it's more for the personalization of your experience. They always want to ensure that there is a, a representative from the store to assist you on your journey. So whether that's looking at items but that's asking about items. They're there to really not be a personal shopper, but they're there to be assist you from the moment you walk in to the moment you either purchase or you exit the store. One thing I've always found very credible about each staff member is their knowledge of the, the products. They can tell you about the leather. They can tell you about the quality of the leather. They can tell you about how to look after to, to ensure longevity. So I think it, it, it is, it's quite impressive that these are people who really are into luxury leather goods to know about its sort of history, to talk about the quality, to offer their opinions and to maybe show similar items, you know, what is new, what's old, what's coming soon, um, what's no longer on, on, on sale because sometimes items you may know from the last season are no longer on sale in store. So it's very good to know that whoever's assisting you is, you know, has the, has the knowledge, is credible, they're on hand to help and assist you. It's very much a personalized experience because there aren't so many people in store. Um, and my my usual my usual experience in there has been quite um, positive. The last time I went in store, it's actually um, in July of last year when we were in Copenhagen, um, but there was a long queue uh, near to Shiro's um, apartment. So yeah, but yeah, all in all good. I, I, I focus on Louis Vuitton rather than any of the other products. Um, but yeah, Shiro, I'll pass it over to you about your experiences. Yes, definitely. The they excel with the with the smaller things. I would say. I think I always remember the first experience and the last experience. The first experience was 2012, 10, 2013, Got that full time Swiss contract, and um, I think after the first first year, I decided to buy myself a Rolex watch and an LV bag. So that tells you my state of mind at that at that that time frame. You, but, you and Daniel, I know why uh, P asked you two to do this topic. You guys are balling, man. Let me a fiver. You guys are. This is 2012 2013 but i remember the first experience because obviously i was a bit apprehensive right if i think about the bag at the time it was just over a thousand spending a thousand on a bag at any any time frame is wild right especially when you're 22 23 years old but i remember walking into the shop and as daniel has said the customer service is impeccable they're not rushing you to buy there's always space in the store and each of the associates really know their their business and i think since then 
whenever I've had any issues with the bag, say if the strap breaks or this has started to fray, etc., I go back in and they replace it. Obviously, at a, a, a slightly expensive cost, but they do replace it. And I think they also keep track of that as well. And um, when I recently went in uh, in Copenhagen last year for a mentor of mine, I bought him a, a small gift. It was a scarf. Um, and then even with that, when because I've been with them, they type in my name, even in Copenhagen, and they've got all my details. I don't need to tell them everything again. Packaging was really great. And it's just it's just that continuous high quality experience. And I think what Daniel just alluded to, the fact that now since post pandemic, they limit the number of people in store. So people are now having to queue up. And it presents this image of scarcity of demand of, of luxury. I think it just amplifies the brand. Um, even more so yeah really really positive experiences at least of the the that specific brand olu any experience with louis vuitton you'd like to share <laughs> nah <laughs> i don't have any experience <laughs> i need to step up my <laughs> the, 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 the only the only the, the, the only experience the, the, only, the experience olu has is buying birth decor and john perry in the club <laughs> i was trying i was trying I was trying my hardest not to laugh, but um, no, I can, I, I can only, the only thing I'll add to what you guys are saying is you got experience first, as well. For, of course. First, uh, first of all, what I was saying is um, <laughs> I think that everything that you guys have mentioned is like a key business lessons, right? So you, Dan, you spoke about the, the, the staff that work there and their product knowledge and their understanding of, of what basically what they're trying to sell you. But I think the other thing is this, is this, so you want to be associated with the brand. So, I, so when I, when I purchased my product from, from Louis Vuitton, all I wanted to do thereafter was show it, right? So you feel if I'm if I'm in a lunch with someone, I'm putting it on the table. And it was this, this, I'm connected to such a prestigious brand. So so it's it's again my mindset was that's a 2012 mindset, it's changing out. Um, but it it's all part of that user experience and you wanting to sort of live through that. I think maybe some other um key drivers just before we move on to sort of how they've managed risk is you can see, although we've gone through the period of COVID, um, you could even argue. During that period, people obviously built up a level of savings. If you couple that with being able to sort of increase prices across their brands, they're obviously going to do very, very well. I think markets like India and China have actually grown over the years, um, have also become key players in what they've done. So that's also helped their sales. And I think you, you can almost start to see a, a monopoly situation, right? The only way to really compete with LVMH is you need to have a brand that's been in the market for 50, 60 years, right? So once you've once they've acquired these prestigious brands, it's kind of set precedents and they can establish their global position. So, um, but yeah, really, really great points as to sort of how they've um, been able to, to achieve success over the years. Maybe just a couple of thoughts on, on risks, right? Maybe some of the risks that they might face or they have faced and maybe how they've dealt with some of these challenges. Any, anything that comes to mind? Um, Olu, th- thoughts around, thoughts around that? Yeah, sure. Um, so when I think about the risk that, they face i think the first one we can talk about is the pandemic right they would have had to deal with the supply chain disruption um during that period of time um i think we saw that a lot of um, luxury goods um, brands had issues with either if it was transportation um during that sort of covid period of time or if it was so logistics and sort of supply chain issues during that period of time right which they were able to sort of deal with and recover also, it probably made their brand more exclusive, like um, Shuwal talked about scarcity, right? If there's less of it, also a lot of companies utilize that time to increase prices. And when you've got, like we said before, such premium brands, right? You can justify increasing the price 
can't justify increasing it as much in Primark or whatever, etc. But LV, you can. Um, the next big one that they had, and I know this might felt like in the future, but there was a lot of trade um, tensions within China, right? Um, I know when we look at the revenue, it fell by I think it was twenty seven point five percent in sort of twenty twenty two. Um, within the China region, right? Um, sort of that China conflict or trade tension has sort of died down. Um, but we're sort of still seeing a focus on localization versus globalization, right, across the world. So it'll be good to see how they continue to handle that. And I think the last big one that I, when I was doing my research that came upon was sort of the legal case they had or dispute with Tiffany & Co with that acquisition um, there. And I think that's going to be a big problem that they're going to face, right? When you become so big, similar issue with Apple, Microsoft, Amazon, people start to have a laser focus on your acquisitions and your takeovers, right? Making sure that you're not creating a monopoly, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah, those are the three keys. Yeah, areas. no, cool. I think I'd maybe two two areas um, of, of maybe challenges that they might need to consider moving forward or they're, they're thinking about. I think the first one is, Maybe satu- the element of saturation. So, so Louis Vuitton net sales contributes around 40% of their net sales. Question is, is there a ceiling to how much they can sell with Louis Vuitton around the world? Um, what is that ceiling? That, that could be interesting. If you think about, and I can also imagine like every business is 80-20, right? So 80% of your 12, your sales is coming from 20% of your, of your um, product. The other thing also is markets like China and India. So China's a huge economy. And I think a lot of people don't understand that China have their own brands that they develop, work and scale. And so will it continue to be, how much more room is left to grow in China? So that's perhaps some things for them to consider. I think the other thing is probably the point around counterfeits, right? This, 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 you know, how easy is it to spot a fake versus, how easy is it to spot a fake versus a real um, Louis Vuitton product? I've, I've, you know, um, I think we've all, safe to say, we've all seen fake products there in the market. Um, some people um, who actually have the money buy fake products because they know how much it actually costs to produce a Louis Vuitton bag. They don't want to, st- so therefore they're not spending the real price. So how, so what, how does that play a role in their business moving forward? Um, I even saw something along the lines of, could they leverage the blockchain to actually properly encode and track when someone has purchased a real product versus a fake one? So there could be, I think, I think saturation uh, could could be a something that I guess they've managed so far, but could be a challenge moving forward. Although you've mentioned a couple of points, and especially around the counterfeit, could be some interesting obstacles that they may need to um, manage in order to reach the next next level of success. Any any thoughts from yourself, Daniel, before we move on to what I think is another interesting area of uh, Bernard Ono and and his his empire. Yeah, I'll be very brief. I think when you look at the risks for the future, um, I think the counterfeit one is, is is a major one. Whether that actually helps a brand or not is is yet to be determined because if you've watched the film House of Gucci and they saw fake Gucci products, they actually wanted to continue that. They were actually intrigued to know wh- who made it quite the okayish quality, but also it means that people want it, it's in demand. And as you think about the, the rise of brands in China, I think there's still an exclusivity or, an obs- or a perception of exclusivity about Western brands, especially when people come from China to the West to buy those goods tax-free and they buy lots of it. And a lot of their customers are from the, the Far East. And um, when you look at future sort of, com, you know, competition or risks, I think it's more from a case of 
just continue them them not diversifying. I think people always will make money, will always spend on luxury goods, whether they have the money or not. Credit card debt, we know that's all time high. People will spend on things they like, irrespective of whether they have the whether they have the money. So I don't think saturation is probably a main point of concern. But I think it's just maybe also the brand's perception recently in France. The, the protesters in Paris stormed the, the Louis Vuitton HQ, the LVMH HQ, uh, because Macron wants to increase the retirement age from 62 to 64. And many protesters are saying, take the money from the billionaires. And of course, mm. Arnaud is probably, I think he's either the richest or amongst the top three richest in the world right now with over 200 billion. So, he's yeah. number one. Yeah, okay. Yeah, because, you know, with, with Tesla and Musk, you know, he flips from one, one to five any other any other given day. That's, that's all his guy, man. Um, so, so just to sort of close uh, this topic, last section I wanted to include was around this generational wealth and how they have planned. Succession planning in general has been a very, very important um, integral part for LVMH Group in general. And I think when, when, when reading more and more about LVMH and Bernard himself, I was very inspired by the way he has thought about playing long-term and the way he's thinking about generational wealth and setting up and structuring his family. So just to give some context before we talk about his current level of thinking, when, as you remember, if you go back to the introduction, he, after graduating, he worked for his father's civil engineering business. That business was actually founded by his grandfather. So you already, by the time you've got to Bernard Arnault, you've got generations of steady and um, successful, you know, just building um, business to business. So grandfather, his father himself, and um, there have been, you know, several um, articles out there and he's made it very clear and public on how he is thinking about um, his uh, fortune when he when he transitions. And he has five children. Um, his oldest is a daughter and he has uh, and there's four boys. And every child has a position within the company. So it's either head of one daughter as head of Dior. The, the, the son then is um, head of the LVMH uh, parent company. You've got a VP of Tiffany & Co., uh, director of the watches, and also uh, Tag Heuer. And every month, he has a lunch with all of his children to understand, get their thoughts and ideas as to what they think about the business. And at some point, and what he's effectively doing is, is they're all auditioning, right, to as to who's going to basically take ultimate control of LVMH Group moving forward. So, I, And I think it's just a fascinating case study because we talk a lot about generational wealth. It's something which is near and dear to, I think, all of us. And here you actually see, you know, hundreds of years of, of history with not only the brands, but also from a family standpoint and how he's thinking about his family moving forward. Uh, not an easy task, but at least he's kind of, you know, shared a little bit of, of the plan. So I just wanted to maybe collect your thoughts on what you've you've picked up in, in how he's positioning the family and the structure. You know, everybody had to be well-educated. Everybody had to have a position in the company. No one can just go off and do their own thing. What's your thoughts and your take on on, on what you've learned about that side of, of his philosophy and way of thinking. Yeah, I can chime in. Um, Pete, I think whenever you see a lot of these successful, um, wealthy um, individuals, um, one of their downfalls is always their um, their their children, right? Um, a lot of times people say, um, how long is your wealth going to continue, right? They say, as you sort of, you're working hard, you're building your empire, which he's done. Your kids don't have the same struggles, don't understand sort of the hard work, the graph, the complexities, what is needed to continue that legacy. And then they just basically waste that wealth to a point where in two to three generations later, you're back at zero, right? So I think 
the first element is it comes from a family of business owners, right? And I'm not talking about small business owners. It seems like from a young age, they're all educated and okay, how do you run the family business? He's implemented that with himself with, when you look at his children, all of them are involved in um, LVMH. If there's a CEO role, um, I think he's got one son who's an executive. Um, let me just check it again. Yeah, one who's an executive vice president of Louis Vuitton. Um, another one, his second eldest son, was part of one of the luxury footwear brand. Um, and Alexandra, his youngest son, who is part of a luggage making company, right? CEO, right? So it's not a situation where it's, okay, just enjoy life, live a bachelor's lifestyle, enjoy my wealth. It's no, you need to be educated. You need to understand the running of the business. And I'm sure he's going to make a decision out of these three kids to decide who does he feel is best suited to take over from him when he's done. Um, another thing that I found quite three, interesting. Three. What, what happened to the fourth? Why did he start on the fourth child? He's got I'm saying yeah, out of those three kids who are in more senior executive oh. roles. Yeah. Right. And then lastly, if I think about another thing that I thought was quite interesting was the way he's he's set up his family business. So they, his family and everything, they've established a family holding company right um which allows him to sort of control the assets ensure how it's managed strategically um he's probably got rules and obligations in which they need to follow so one he's able to obviously protect all the assets that he has secondly there's probably tax um benefits that he's got there um being able to centralize the management and ownership and how that's coped with and then really like a family family governance right so uh, if that's um, decision making, how decisions are going to be made, who's going to be able to sell companies in the future when he's gone, right? He's probably put together a whole play for the kids to continue following and handing down from one generation to another. So yeah, really insightful. Um, but all of this obviously starts from number one, which is having a successful business, right? That you can pass. So lots of nice lessons for the listeners but the first part would be how do you establish a company or something big enough that you can pass on to your kids before then you follow step two three sure daniel any any thoughts as to you know what you've heard there what you've learned about how he's thinking about generational wealth do, do you like the sound of it do you think it's a good example to follow um or it's too much daniel you want to go or yeah, you can do what he wants <laughs> no i i Honestly, from, from a different lens, I think it's very intriguing when you have such a successful business and have um, a large family or you know children that could possibly inherit your heir, because often that can create sibling rivalry at a young age. It can also be who's the best suited for this role. Naturally, you, you may think it's easy to give it to the eldest child, but how about the eldest child isn't, you know, entrepreneurial minded business got you know good got, got good business acumen etc so then it may be the fault to the next so it's very intriguing to know rather than from a higher level but from a sibling level what that creates between you and your siblings of oh i'm going to outperform you this quarter or this year for my group um so i think it's just from that from that angle it's you know should you pass it on to your children you should pass it on to someone else um with you know you know a lot of family control within and shareholders voting rights etc 
I don't know, but it's just intriguing to see how he does it because when you say doing monthly meetings to see who should own or who should inherit the business or take over or run the business, it's almost like a constant interview, which does create that, of course, the hunger, but also rivalry or competition, which sometimes is healthy, but for an ongoing lengthy period of time, I think can be quite negative. Um, and maybe he should deploy a tactic of trying to give it, you know, before he gets too old. And I think he's changed the corporate structure to continue to be at the helm to 80 or 80 plus. Um, so, you know, it'll be interesting to see what happens because even if he does pass over ownership, if he doesn't naturally take become a hands-off over time, he might feel like he needs to get into the weed of things if it's just a sudden process. I think he needs to do a, a, a quite a, a long five five year transition period to kind of get yourself out and let everything run without you having any input. But yeah, who am I? I'm yeah. not the one that built the empire. My business, but yeah, yeah, no, I, I, of course, of course, no. But I agree, Dan. I like that that thinking. And I was, and I'm even as a, as a fan um, sitting on this side, um, hope hoping at some point maybe soon he can announce who the successor is and they can kind of figure out a way to move forward in the sense of we, we know who will be the successor and now that person is coached and everybody within the family is sort of aligned. But again, I think um, fascinating um, um, topic. I think we, we definitely had to cover this topic because you're talking about the first European company has reached 500 billion euros in valuation and they're only going to continue to grow. Uh, Bernard, to your point, Daniel has no plans of retiring only wants to continue growing. So it'll be interesting to see what the future looks like for LVMH. But I think it's just an incredible story on one, how business has grown through acquisition of prestigious brands and actually how you can sort of, he is third generation, right? And what they say about third generation is usually that's where the wealth is lost. But he's grown to 236 billion and actually then has five kids in which then he's devising a successful plan for. So very, very, I think um, some really, really cool, critical um, business lessons that we've picked up during this discussion. I'll just close by a, a quote um, that he is quite renowned for have, have said, and I think it's, it's good because it helps you to anchor towards the, the long term. He says, um, Bernardo Noh has, has said, money is just a consequence. I always say to my team, don't worry too much about profitability. If you do your job well, the profitability will come. And what that, that does is it really anchors him back to this long-term thinking um, view that he takes on everything that which he does. And as you can see, you know, it's got him to number one on the Forbes list um, when other players are in the tech space, which moves a lot faster. So very, very interesting there. But um, with that, I'll, I'll leave it over to you, Daniel, to, to close. Thank you all for joining episode 182 of Take Flight Podcast. We hope you've enjoyed it. We hope you've enjoyed the story of Louis Vuitton, Moet, Hennessy, and the empire that has continued to be at the forefront of this you know, fashion, cosmetic, beauty, luxury brands, um, different industries over the years and how it's grown. But as always, if you have any feedback for us, you can find us on Instagram at Take Flight Podcast. Find us on TikTok at Take Flight Podcast. Find us on YouTube at Take Flight Podcast. Wherever you consume us, it's Take Flight Podcast. Until next time, stay safe and God bless. Take off, take